Hello and welcome to this week's Doxit podcast, coming to you on Sunday the 28th of June 2020. My name's Fiona Stewart. And I'm Philip Nitschke. And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series. Now this week's podcast is titled Miscarriage, and we're referring to the recent failed appeal of Australian man Graham Morant. In 2018, Graham was found guilty of assisting in the suicide and inciting the suicide of his wife Jenny. This is an intriguing story, so stay with us for the next 30 minutes. Okay, Philip, let's get started. Jenny Morant died in 2014. She was a member of Exit International. How did she come to suicide? Well, she, she was in contact with us uh, over a peri- um, quite a period of time, talking about her desire to end her life. In fact, that's one of the reasons we know so much about the situation was the series of emails that she sent to us uh, about her desire to die and the reasons behind it. And importantly, she talked about the fact that she wasn't getting any support and she couldn't get any help from her husband to, to take this particular step. And so she wanted to know from us how she might go about it. But sure, she was sick, right? She wasn't. We're not talking about a well woman. No, she had a lot of complaints. She'd given us a detailed account of the things that she was suffering from, but they wouldn't have been in any way described as a terminal illness. She was a person who was obviously worried about all sorts of things to do with her health, injuries and so forth, back injuries and the so like. So she'd had failed. She'd had several instances of spinal surgery, and she said the surgery had failed, and she now lived in chronic pain. Yes, I think that's not an unusual story for people who do have trouble with long, ongoing trouble with severe back pain and the associated uh, conditions of depression associated with that was something that seemed to be behind a lot of her rather sad account of her situation that she described to us. Yeah, she wrote to Exit saying that her life was pretty much a misery she, or that she had no life. Most days she couldn't get out of bed, such was the pain and the nausea. She was on quite a list of medications. Yeah, that's true. Yes, it's not an unusual story, though. So we're talking about a woman should be described as chronically ill then rather than terminally ill? Oh, yeah, she certainly wasn't terminally ill. You would describe her as a person who was suffering and chronically ill. But a person, for example, who would never have been considered uh, eligible for any of the assisted suicide legislative uh, approaches that are now being adopted around Australia. And I guess especially the one that's recently been abandoned in Queensland, which was her home state anyway. No, she would not have been eligible. So Jenny Morant wrote to you personally, Philip, explaining her situation. She was 56 years old and she was pleading with you to help her end her life. And of course, she got the standard reply from Exit that we can't actually help you end your life. We can only refer you to information so you can make that decision yourself. But she did say she'd had this spinal surgery. She was on drugs, a pretty awful drug regime, I guess. Oxycontin, Endone, Tramadol, Stematil, Maxilon, Panadol, Osteo. There's no doubt about it that her quality of life was pretty poor. She said she'd had several years of this predicament, this state of affairs, living at home, and that now was the time to go. Now that's significant, isn't it, in terms of her own decision to make to make her decision to die? Oh yes, this was a person who had made her, had been thinking about this for a long time and had been making plans to go down that course and she wanted from us I suppose practical information about how to go about it and as you said we referred her to the detailed information in the Peaceful Pill Handbook leaving it effectively to her to make up her own mind about if she wanted to take that further step. Now she said at one point that she had discussed her plans with her husband Graham but he was too upset to help her. Now when it came 
to our attention in the media. I mean, we, this is the first we heard about, about it was really that we read a story in the media of Graham Morant, Morant being sentenced, I think it was. Yeah, we were unaware, apart from the emails we were getting where she also complained that her husband refused to bring her to an exit meeting because we were holding exit workshops in Queensland and she wanted to come to one. He wouldn't apparently take her to it and she'd written to us saying she couldn't get any assistance from him. Do we know why he wouldn't bring her? I mean, he's been painted in the media as a born-again Christian. It seems that you can be Christian and that's good, but then if you're a born-again, that kind of tips you over into wacky territory. It's interesting and that's that's an issue for another day. But do we know why he wouldn't bring her to an exit workshop? No, we were unaware really of anything about him other than her complaints that her husband, this person we knew nothing about and certainly nothing about his uh, religious interests, hadn't been supportive of her idea that she wished to die and wouldn't bring her to a meeting. So it was rather surprising when we heard about, we didn't know about her death and we didn't even know about the trial until we read about it in the media, then to find that he had been charged and found guilty of not only assisting, but counselling to take this step. On the basis of Exit's own own communications with Jenny, we know that her quality of life is extremely poor. She had chronic pain daily, spent most days in bed. But she did eventually manage to devise a way where she could die peacefully and reliably with carbon monoxide poisoning in her vehicle. And this was done at a remote location. Yeah, we heard about this only in the details of the trial as it became clear what had actually taken place. It's not a method that we would suggest. We've got a little section in the handbook about, well, quite a section on carbon monoxide, but not the idea of buying a generator, which is what seems to have taken place, that is a petrol motor, and running the petrol motor inside a vehicle. That would be considered to be something which was a little unusual and certainly nothing that we would be advocating. I mean, because this is the the classic suicide method, I guess, of people putting exhaust pipes of old cars into in the window and dying that way. But that wasn't that wasn't the situation with Jenny, was it? No, I, this is a. It, this has there has been this method that's been used for years, where people run a hose pipe out of the back of a, a petrol exhaust into the car. That's considered to be quite a difficult process, and we write about that in the handbook. What she had done, it it, it came out in the trial, was purchase a petrol generator, a small petrol motor, basically, and putting it inside the car with the windows up, running the motor inside the car. The exhaust from the petrol motor running inside the car produces enough carbon monoxide for a person to die. It would be pretty unpleasant in a lot of ways, but it does work and she Why died. would it be unpleasant? Well, the exhaust fumes stink, it's hot, it's noisy, you've got a motor running inside the car. Look, it would have been a difficult step to take and I suppose in some ways it's a measure of her level of desperation. So here we have Jenny Morant having, quote, successfully completed her suicide. What then happens to her husband? From what we can see from the trial, the accusation was made that he had in some way assisted her, which is certainly a crime. We know that assisting a suicide is a crime. And in the state of Queensland, you can even have life imprisonment as a possible penalty. It's a serious crime. On top of that, though, he was charged with counselling her to suicide, talking her into it, in effect. And it would seem that he was found guilty by the jury of both counts. In other words, that he assisted her by, in some way, 
allowing her to get a generator, driving her to the hardware store where she was able to purchase a generator, and then somehow or other talking her into doing it. This is the idea of actually counselling her to take this step. Found guilty on both charges and given, amazingly, 10 years for counselling, six years for assisting to be served concurrently. So an all-up sentence of 10 years in prison for this charge, charges that he was uh, accused of. And this is unusual in the sense that it was possibly the first trial ever where a person had been found guilty of urging someone to suicide. In other words, counselling them to take this step. But what I don't quite understand is that in all her writing to Exit, she said my husband was un- you know, unwilling to bring me to an Exit workshop. He's too upset to help me. It seems that he wasn't exactly the cooperative, um, malleable husband that she wanted. And yet that's exactly what he's been found guilty of. Well, you can imagine our surprise when we read the uh, the decision of the trial. First, we were unaware the trial was going on. And had we known about it, we would have gone back and looked at our records. But we had no knowledge of it till after the sentence had been passed and we found there had been this trial and that one of our members had in fact died. And then on top of that, we found that he'd been accused of all of these things, which her emails to us showed clearly that he couldn't possibly have been guilty of. So I felt quite upset about it to the point that we contacted her lawyers immediately and suggested to them that there'd been a serious uh, problem with the trial in the fact that the court had been unaware of very important information and that is the information that she'd shared with Exit. And what's so interesting about this whole Jenny Moran case is that on the basis of the written communication we have with her at exit her husband was uncooperative he was unwilling to help and yet in court he's actually been found and been painted by the prosecution as being quite manipulative of her and hence the incitement charge and in in some ways it's the incitement incitement to suicide charge that is been the more significant of the two charges has been assisting a suicide and inciting her and the judge found that were it not for the actions of Graham Morant Jenny Morant wouldn't have died and yet everything that she wrote to exit was that she was very much wanting to suicide she was wanting to put an end to her suffering and so we've got two narratives running here the one in exit that is in her, it's actually emails written by her to us over a period of time. And then you've got the way that Graham Morant was pictured in court. Yes, it makes no sense. It was the, In the trial, it was painted that he was after some form of financial benefit from her death. There was a suggestion that there was life insurance policies that were made out to him. I don't know who else they would be well, made out to. Well, I don't think to. it's a suggestion. I mean, there were three life insurance policies totaling $1.4 million dollars. Yes, and there was the claim that he wanted to set up a religious community uh, behind Queens in the in the mountains behind Brisbane somewhere or other. I mean, the idea was that he was a, some religious fundamentalist driven by some clear religious conviction, all of which makes the whole thing very strange because clearly he would not have been a supporter of Exit. And the idea... And hence his reluctance to bring her to an exit meeting. That's right. That was quite consistent. The fact that he had strong religious convictions were quite consistent with our emails, her emails to us saying, my husband won't help me. He won't do the things I want. I want to die, but he won't assist me in any way. So to find that he was now found guilty of this and the suggestion mean that she would never have even suicided if it hadn't been for his encouragement 
seemed bizarre, which is why we immediately contacted her defence lawyers and said, we think there's been a miscarriage of justice here. They weren't aware of these emails. They weren't aware of this background communication between Jenny and Exit. So at trial, a jury found him guilty, that he both incited and encouraged his wife to suicide and that he actually did acts which constituted helping her to suicide. At sentencing... Justice Peter Davis of the Queensland Supreme Court said Mrs Morant was a vulnerable person with difficulties with her physical health. You, as in the husband Graham Morant, you took advantage of those vulnerabilities in order to persuade her to kill herself and then assisted her to do so once she had made that decision. A jury found that Miss Morant would not have died without the encouragement of her husband. And it just flies in the face of everything that we have from Jenny Morant, that the husband's gone from being unwilling, uncooperative, to being manipulative and encouraging of her to die. Yeah, that's why we call it. We call the section miscarriage. It's a, to us, it's a clear miscarriage because they did not have in their possession the full facts. Now, at law, there's very few grounds upon which an appeal can actually go forward once somebody's been found guilty of a criminal offence. So the trial was only enabled because this was this was thought, at least by the defence lawyers of Graham Morant, to constitute new evidence. And the new evidence has to be pretty persuading to get up in terms of an appeal. What's so flabbergasting, I guess, about this is that the new evidence was put to the full bench of the Supreme Court sitting as a court of appeal um, was that it was simply dismissed that the jury the jury verdict stands so the jury decided on the facts that he he encouraged her but the facts at the time were that they had no knowledge of any of her of not only of her membership of exit but of her communications with us showing that she was very much a woman of her own mind and she had very understandable reasons as to why she might want to die well, when I read the decision of the, the rejection of the appeal and the reasons behind that rejection, I was completely taken aback. The suggestion made by the three judges involved, but Justice Bodice may came out with the comments along the lines that uh, he did not feel that the sentence was manifestly excessive, which was one of the reasons for the appeal, that it was an excessively high uh, penalty. But the second thing he said was that he didn't really believe that if the jury had been in possession of the exit emails, they would have changed their opinion. And I think that's absolutely crazy. I would like to I would like to place these emails under the nose of the jury. I'm sure they would change their mind because it was very, very clear that this person had not done what he was accused of. I mean, it says something about the Western legal system in that juries can find a person guilty on, on the facts and then when new evidence does arise, there's no role for the jury in reconsidering what the conclusions that they came to. And it's sort of the, it, the balls are stacked against the, the accused and against the person who's found guilty to try and dig their way out of a mess. I mean, we've we've been in courts before where the issue has been money like a significant amount of money in a will to be inherited and I don't think you can ever downplay this issue of of money and how that influences the ability of a prosecution to spin a story in a particular way and a jury to fall for it. Yeah that's we've seen that before as you suggest the Graham Wiley case in Sydney was a good example of that where the the prosecuting 
the prosecuting lawyers made much of the fact that there was to be money taken, money inherited when the husband died, that his wife would inherit the house. I now, don't know who else was Graham going to Graham Wiley get it. was a Qantas pilot who died in oh, early 2000s. I think that trial was in 2008. What happened was that his partner, Shirley Justins, and Nexit volunteer, Karen Jenning, were both charged with assisting his suicide. Karen was found to have gone to Mexico to buy the Nembitel. She gave the Nembitel to Shirley. Shirley gave it to Graham. Graham said peace at last and died. And Graham had been a Qantas pilot. He could have got himself organised but never bothered to. Graham had had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And so there were lots of questions in the trial about his mental capacity. And there was also the issue of his will, changing his will not that long before he died. I mean, of course, he would want his partner of 25 years to... In- to inherit his beautiful house and several million. However, the the, uh, adult daughters had other ideas. But that story was spun in the Sydney Supreme Court as one of being about money and about a poor man with Alzheimer's being exploited by the awful scheming wife of 25 years. Yeah, well, in that particular case, it was spun to such a degree they even claimed that his Alzheimer's was so bad that he didn't have his suicide-assisted that, in fact, he was murdered because he couldn't suicide because of his Alzheimer's disease. And this is Alzheimer's, which the solicitor that took the instructions for the change of the will never noticed that he there was anything lacking in his mental capacity. So no. there are all sorts of questions. Again, in all of these cases, as they say in the law, turn on the facts. Everyone is individual and there are always factors which, I guess, persuade a jury one way or the other. But another case that the Graham Morant affair has been compared to is that of young American woman in Massachusetts, Michelle Carter. Now, who is Michelle Carter, you may say? Michelle Carter was the young woman, she was 17 at the time, when her 18-year-old boyfriend died of carbon monoxide poisoning in the cabin of his truck. Michelle Carter was found to have encouraged him to suicide by, in the days preceding his death, sending him multiple text messages on the phone, encouraging him to take his own life. He said he was going to do it. Why don't you just do it? And then at the final moment when he was in the truck with the carbon monoxide pouring in, he stumbled out of the truck, texted her. She texted him back saying, get back in the fucking truck. Is that right, Philip? Yeah, it was a case that attracted a lot of attention because, again, here we have the situation of someone supposedly or accused of urging a person who's an adult to take the step of ending their lives. And ending your life is not a crime. Suicide is not a crime. But Michelle was accused of urging him to take this step and was subsequently found guilty of the offence of counselling a person to take the step. So it's very similar to the same accusation that was levelled against Graham Morant that he had in some ways counselled his wife to take this step. And it's a very interesting situation in law where a person can take the step of ending their lives and someone else can find themselves paying a heavy legal price for it. I mean, again, there are those differences in regard to the, the, the circumstances of the cases. And one, I guess one of the large differences, the big differences, is a legal one, and that Michelle Carter's defence lawyers were arguing that her text messages were protected under the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment of free speech. 
Now, that didn't stand up in court, but needless to say, Australia doesn't have a Bill of Rights and we certainly don't have any constitutional protections around free speech, as we fully know, given that our book is still technically banned in the country. Yeah, the business about the tech, about the message that she'd sent... It was look. It was a very interesting case, and it went back over a period of time where, for a while, there text messages that she'd sent him also suggested that he go off and seek treatment for his despair. And then it would seem that the situation changed, and she'd become frustrated and had sent him a text message, as you just quoted there, in the end to get on, get on with it. Now, all in all, though, the question really is: I think does a, in a situation where you start giving advice to people to take this step that that should be considered to be a crime. It's unusual, and so unusual, in fact, that this one in Australia, the situation with Graham Morant was considered to be quite a precedent-setting case, 10 years for telling someone to take this step. Now, I would argue, I think, especially in the situation where we have evidence that it wasn't as clear-cut as that, to have anyone languishing in prison for this is bizarre. I think it's a clear miscarriage of justice. I would love to have our emails put in front of the jury, and I think they should be put in front of the jury, not in front of three judges of an appeal court who clearly don't understand, and it's altogether too much trouble to try and reverse this decision. So this man will rot in prison now for a crime I don't think we could clearly say he ever committed. I mean, in some ways, I think Michelle Carter had it easy, although I'm sure she would disagree with that. I mean, because she was 17 at the time of her boyfriend's death, he was 18, she was actually tried in a juvenile court and she was eventually given 15 months prison and she was released in January just this year, uh, I think three months early for good behaviour, something which hasn't gone down too well with the boyfriend's family. They think that she got off far, far too easily. But there is that situation where she and he, you know, silly teenagers, both encouraging each other to die and her oscillating between trying to save him and trying to, I guess, support him, even if it wasn't a very misguided way. And both cases, both the Graham Morant case and the Michelle Carter case, I mean, the method of suicide was both times quite obscure in terms of the carbon monoxide. Yeah, I think that's just a coincidence, but it's interesting that these two, I suppose, precedent-setting cases from around the world, this very bizarre situation of urging someone to take the step of ending their life that finds a person in front of a jury and receiving significant legal penalty, used that unusual method of taking this step. I think the whole question, though, would really comes it really surprises me that we're now seeing these issues play out it's almost as if when someone takes a step of ending their life other people are understandably upset but they start looking around for someone to blame it seems that certainly happened in the case of Jenny Morant we've got the situation there where a close friend and a sister are looking around who can we blame for the fact that our sister or our close friend has ended her life and who's the penalty who's the person who's there attracting that attention her husband so we're looking at someone to blame and in some ways assuage our own guilt. And that seemed also to be the case now with Michelle Carter, where the family there are upset that she's even out of prison. They wanted her to pay a heavy price. It's interesting you should just bring up that issue of people to blame because we've had an email in this week of, from, a, from a young guy in America saying that his girlfriend is on a suicide website um, on the internet and that she wants to kill herself, and why are we publishing a book like the Peaceful Pill Handbook that we should pull it from publication because young people, not via us, via pirated copies on the internet, are getting hold of it. 
And we've had to go back to him multiple times to try and get him to understand. You're the boyfriend of her. If she's suicidal, you're the person in the best place to protect her. I mean, don't go and put your blame on on exit or on ourselves as the authors of the book. Yeah, we see so much of this where family members looking around upset, clearly when a family member or someone they're close to takes a step of, ta- of ending their own lives, trying to explain away the circumstances and looking for someone to lash out at and exit cops a lot of this. Now, in this situation here, it would seem that the, the relations of Jenny Morant uh, want him to pay a price, and I guess he's paying a price. Similarly, the family of Michelle Carter, uh, the family of her boyfriend, Roy, I think his name was, want her to pay a price and she's paid a hell of a price too. But when it comes right down to it, a person, adult person, takes a step of ending their life. Clearly that's what they wish to do. It's not a crime suicide. And I think when we start running around now trying to blame people and throw them into prison because they take steps that we don't like, it needs to be looked at very closely. And in this situation, with all this extra evidence in the case of of Graham Morant, It really needs to be a situation where there's been a travesty of justice, a miscarriage of justice. Now, we're putting this podcast out at a time when there's significant controversy in Australia, at least, about one certain former High Court Justice, Dyson Hayden, who's been accused by no less than six former associates of sexual harassment and other prominent women in Australia also sexual harassment, even sexual assault. The the, the thought, the very thought that judges somehow always get it right, is controversial. And for many years, there's been community education programs for judges to bring them into the real world. One thing Philip and I have been discussing in regard to the Graham Morant case is that there seems to be a need to educate judges in the suicidal thoughts or the suicidal thoughts makes it sound it's the wrong terminology but into why people with chronic pain might want to end their suffering because what's become manifestly clear in the Graham Morant case and the judge's lack of lack of willingness to engage in the information that Graham Morant's defense lawyers have presented to them as new evidence and that is that she had a mind of her own and she was planning on ending her life and that he was not manipulating a vulnerable woman, rather that she was taking the, the initiative. I mean, in many ways we sit in privileged position here because we hear the reasons every day why people buy the book and why they join the organisation. So we have a pretty detailed, long-term and often sophisticated insights into people's state of mind as to why they want to be prepared for end of life and how the judgments about quality of life are incredibly important in the way people determine and set about to have an exit plan, which Jenny, Jenny Morant was trying to do. Now, of course, we can't expect judges in the Supreme Court or anywhere else to have that level of understanding. I mean, that's that's not their job and that's not their daily business. But you would expect judges to be open-minded to evidence of the nature that was put in front of them for the Graham Morant appeal and to see that they've, I think from our point of view, refused to engage and just dismiss the evidence so so forthrightly to say that the jury would not have changed their their verdict 
that's what's so disappointing. So, Philip, the take-home messages from the Graham Morant affair, it would, the first one would have to be that if you know someone ha- that is considering ending their life and they've told you as much, that you need to be very careful in what you say to them. Yes, you better be very careful about what you say. Let, alone what, you, let alone what you do. <laughs> so assisting, and we've been talking for a long time about the risks of assisting someone in some sort of practical way, that's clearly a crime. But if you start talking about it with them, well, maybe that's a crime too. So be careful. That's a one take-home message. Because this is new. This this con- conspiracy to help someone suicide or incitement to encourage people. I mean, this is a new... The law is expanding its breadth of how it's prosecuting, how the, how the state is prosecuting people who are close to those who take this step to end their lives. Yeah, the law is expanding its uh, domain a little and I think it goes hand in hand with the introduction of assisted suicide laws. What they will say is, look, there is a path there. We've brought new laws in states like Victoria or Western Australia where if you fit these narrow criteria, you can get lawful help to die. But heaven help you if you do anything else. And it would seem that they're expanding that anything else into this domain of even talking about it with a person who may be contemplating taking this step. So I'll be contacting the lawyers again about our disappointment in this decision by the appeal court judges and I'll make contact I hope with uh, Graham in his prison cell not that we've got much in common him being it would seem a born-again Christian and me being an atheist but nevertheless I don't think anyone should be paying this sort of price for a non-crime and that's what we're seeing here. So let this be a lesson. If a person close to you is looking to end their own life, you need to be extremely careful, not only in terms of what you do, so the acts that could be constituted as assisting the person, but also what you say. It's a dangerous world we live in. If you're interested in these issues and you'd like to read more, we invite you to visit www.peacefulpill.com. We also have our other books. There's Philip's fantastic autobiography, Damned If You Do, Damned If I, Damned if I Do, which was co-written with Peter Corris and published by Melbourne University Press, and also our first book, Killing Me Softly, published by Penguin. Both of those books are available on the exitinternational.net homepage. Thanks for listening and we'll look forward to being with you next week. Bye for now.